Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I catch up with Ross Bailey, the CEO and founder of Fifth Wall Portfolio Company Appear Here, an online marketplace for retail space. Ross discusses the art of curation and creativity, two factors which the company believes will drive the future of brick and mortar retail and how landlords can attract the next big brands to their assets. Ross, thanks so much for for joining. Uh, So Ross Bailey is the founder and CEO of Appear Here and you're in London, right? Yeah, I'm in London. Thanks for having me, Brandon. Yeah, definitely. Um, can you just give everyone a bit of background on what the original idea behind Appear Here was and how that vision has played out over the last few years? For sure. So I started Appear Here just so, around five years ago. The website actually went live. I had the idea a few years before then, and I had actually created my own shop. So I managed to convince a landlord, and it was a lot harder than I first imagined, to lend me a store for a couple of weeks. And... It was the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, which is in Britain where we celebrate the monarchy. So it's very archaic. And um, I designed pictures of the Queen's face with David Bowie stripes through her face. And me and my best mate were like, well, how do we be part of this national moment? So we sell these t-shirts. And the first thing we do is we created a Shopify site, which was so easy. And suddenly, you know, we could sell anywhere. And then I was like, well, let's take a store. And complete naivety, I thought you'd be able to book it I mean, even using that phrase, I thought you'd be able to book it and that you'd be able to take it for a few weeks. And then when I, you know, people have been running shops from the beginning of time, right? It should be easy. And when I did it, I couldn't believe how difficult it was. I couldn't believe how you needed long-term leases and, and really how there was no way to, one, participate. And two, you realize that retail, physical retail, had been set up for businesses of a certain scale and a certain type. And, you know, I eventually I managed to do it after a lot of difficulty and, and I guess two things I realized one was that create the Shopify site and, and frankly we just didn't make any sales but the moment we opened the shop not only did we make a ton of sales in the store but we suddenly started driving sales online I remember this is like before five years ago so this whole idea of on the channel wasn't a thing yet but you're going hang a minute everyone was telling me that it was all about online and you know guy growing up in technology and yet this this, the old thing, these shops are actually driving that. So that was first real interesting realization. And the second thing that was interesting to me is you're like, if we could make this suck less, if we could make this easier, if we could make the process of question, leasing, that is. The, the process of leasing, the process, yeah, of leasing and, and questioning like, why hadn't anyone sort of dared to make it different than just for these businesses of a certain scale? would there actually be more people that wanted to launch stores? So the idea that vacancy rates were getting higher and that retail is disappearing, which, you know, is more relevant today than ever. It was like, actually, if you gave more people the ability to access this space, would more people want to create and participate and have their voices heard um, and, and, and be entrepreneurs, so to speak? And that was really the essence of what led to the idea of Appear Here. And Appear Here is a two-sided marketplace. The way of thinking it very simply is like Airbnb for retail. 
Um, and initially it sort of started off with flexibility and pop-up shops and but really it's always been about retail in general and our view is that retail will be more flexible um, but people we now see have been in shops for four years plus but they've been paying as they go but the whole point and the whole essence of appear here is allowing people to appear and bring their idea to life um, and in many ways uh, you know how can we as a company just keep reducing friction so you can make it easier than ever for people to create, so to speak. And what's so interesting about Appear Here is that it, it kind of sits at the, the intersection of all of these like big secular trends. It's like on the one hand, you have you know the death of retail, the retail apocalypse, the fact that you know e-commerce is taking more share from brick and mortar retail. On the on the other hand, you have just the explosion in consumer choice, right? Which we were just talking about, this idea that consumers are buying products from so many more brands and those brands are oftentimes homegrown and very small and they're opening their first store, their first Shopify account. And, you know, you have this now confounding variable of, of COVID and the fact that everyone has just been, you know, quarantined for I yeah. guess, four months now, it sounds like in, in the UK. How do you see appear here kind of being well positioned in the aftermath of COVID, just given what we all went through? I think that, you know, in many ways, you sort of talk about those big trends and you've got these huge structural shifts in commercial real estate, like you spoke about. You've got um, global brand and advertising spend and things like performance marketing every year have become more expensive and less effective. You've got this rise of like the passion economy that people talk about, or the creator economy, like people doing things that they care about versus just about making money. And you know, that's growing businesses like Etsy or Shopify or, or co-working or all these things. And I think that idea of the individual entrepreneur. And then you've got the internet and technology. And I think that in many ways, what COVID has done is it hasn't really changed anything. Um, and it's sort of you know a bad analogy, but... I sort of said it to you earlier, that retail and traditional retail was like a 95-year-old with pre-existing health conditions, that COVID has just accelerated the inevitable. And, and I think what's really happened here is, is retail has changed forever, but it's moved 2030 to 2020. And that means that the technological trends that were happening have now happened. Um, it means that the structural shifts in real estate that some people were trying to band-aid over and sort of pretend didn't exist have now just been amplified. Um, and I think it means that the individual entrepreneur and, and all of those elements, and the bit you mentioned around consumer choice, I think there's gonna be more relevance for someone to start and create now. In every single economic downturn, we've seen that entrepreneurial spirit rise stronger. But also, I think that we're in society, we're reaching this point where there are a few companies that are getting more and more power and there's more and more consolidation. And I think that people are fighting back against that. I think consumers are fighting back against that. And in many ways in retail, that has been an extreme over many years, right? Like retail became very consolidated. It became, um, you know, with lots of HQ costs, it became about opening up as many stores as possible in as many locations as possible. And if I blindfolded you and put you in any major city in the world, you know, a lot of streets had you know, not only looked the same, but had literally the same merchants. And I think what's interesting now is that the retail that's disappearing and declining is that sort of idea of mass retail 
Um, it's the multi-billion pound brands that haven't been able to adapt. But what we're seeing and what we've seen over the last few years is a real rise of direct-to-consumer brands, of entrepreneurs and independently run brands that are utilizing things like Shopify, that are growing very quickly, that are doing tens of millions in sales um, and have huge followings online. And what they're realizing that in many ways, the future of retail distribution is digital, but the future of brands is physical. And the coolest streetwear brands, they all have physical locations. And already, you know, we, we, in the UK, shops only open last Monday, and already we're seeing those types of brands reopening. Even though their sales, you know, they've managed to maintain their sales online, they're still seeing that physical is so important to how they create relevancy and belonging and, and um, any kind of, you know, that, that thing you can't touch, which is the brand power. Um, and I think that that will only accelerate coming out of this. You know, there, there are very few big shifts here. I think that what we've seen is just an acceleration, uh, a massive acceleration of what was already underway. And what's so, what's so interesting about that is that that kind of, um, it touches on something that, that retail used to do very well and kind of lost its way, which is, you know, when I think about growing up, um, when I would go to a mall, you, you'd see the same 200 stores exactly as kind of you described. There was, there was almost no curation. So if you look at a, a shopping center, the business of leasing that shopping center entailed, you build relationships with 200 brands and in some different you know, sets of combinations and configurations, you just put those brands next to one another. But that just stifles consumer choice. And so as, as, as you're describing that with more stores going dark, um, it almost feels like landlords have a new imperative to curate and to um, assemble brands that are synergistic to one another and introduce discovery, um, consumer discovery, back into the retail experience, the physical retail experience. How do you see a peer here is helping landlords do that? Because the, the thing that's, I think, so hard for a landlord is you have to understand cool right? You have to understand what consumers want and what's cool and what's now. And that's not what a landlord does. A landlord structures lease. Yeah. How do you see a peer here as bridging that gap? But, but look, I think what's interesting there, before I sort of answer the question fully, what you just mentioned with landlords and curation is, yeah, landlords don't do that. But interestingly, the people who used to do that were people like the department store, right? Like the buyer. Um, and interestingly, you look at department stores right now and, and you know, they're collapsing. And the problem is, is that in many ways, the buyer and the merchant no longer knows what's cool because what's happened is with Instagram, the average person's idea of aesthetic and idea of what's cool has just dramatically increased that so many of us now are following cool brands all over the world that if you walk into a department store and you don't see stuff that you haven't previously seen, um, in many ways, you're better informed than the department store. So if the department stores aren't even able to do this, I think that it's gonna be, yeah, really difficult, really difficult for landlords. I think a few things have happened. And I think the first thing in retail is we just really see no change, right? Like in the 19, well, in the 80, late 1800s, early 1900s, you had the first sort of department stores launching. You had people like John Wanamaker in the US and he was you know, an absolute innovator. And not only did he invent really the department store as we know it, but he invented things like the price tag. He invented the idea of returns. He invented the receipt. Like these things that really, uh, you know, 
created retail as we know it today. And I think the problem with retail is the way we build it, the way we stock it, the way we measure it. Every key part hasn't changed or adapted in over a hundred or so years. Um, so I think that stuff there needs to massively, massively change. I think that separately to that, you've got the piece you touched upon, which is, you know, there was this other idea of like location, location, location. Like if you build a mall in the right place or you open a store in the right place, the audience will just be there and they'll transact. And, you know, in the 1980s, 90s, the retail, retail just became about mass consumption, opening up as many stores as possible, getting people to purchase as quickly as possible and lost any idea of discovery and, and why people really wanted to go there. And I think that now suddenly, you know, with the internet, we're in a place where the transaction is easy and um, consumption and, you know, and the idea of just getting something appear at your door is, is there and is frictionless. That retail in many ways needs to go back to what it was at the beginning, which was about discovery and finding stuff out for the first time. And, you know, you look at places like whether it was John Wanamaker's store, whether it was Harvey Garden Selfridge's store in London, and you know, when the first plane went over the English Channel, it was the first plane ever to go across water. Within a week, Harvey Gordon Selfridge had taken that plane apart, had rebuilt it inside Selfridges, and a quarter of a million people turned up in a store. You know, the internet didn't exist, calendar entries didn't exist. You couldn't go on um, Eventbrite and book a ticket. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of people showed up because he was showing people the future, he was showing people the world. And in a way, department stores ended up getting run by accountants and real estate became just about, you know, well, if we put this thing here that seems to have worked everywhere else, somehow it will work. And I think it became lazy. And I think what we've now got is an opportunity and, you know, sort of a renaissance of, as there's going to be a lot of supply available and a lot of streets, I think we've got to go back to that sort of day one mentality, which is like, why do people even want to show up? Why do people want to come here? And I think if we figure that out, retail will have an incredible future. But the idea that people want to sit at home on their laptops, I think, again, one thing COVID has certainly shown me and, and shown a lot of people I know is that, you know, being on Zoom calls all day and being on your computer all day is, is so like, two-dimensional. Um, and, you know, COVID took away my sense of smell, right? Like, I caught the virus at the beginning of this and I lost my smell for like two months. And I thought it was like an incredible metaphor of just what we're living through, that like this new world is scentless. And I read somewhere recently that we remember something like less than 10% of things we see, but we remember like 40% of what we smell. And there's something about being in the real world and memories and, you know, all of that stuff that just online can't replicate. And the more that online is on our phones and commerce is everywhere, I think actually the more important physical retail will be, but it's about giving more people access, giving more people the opportunity to create um, and giving more opportunity for people to show that future. And I think that you're not going to be able to predict it. I think you've got to give just more people access. And if you do that, that will create the core. It's a sort of long-winded answer. And one of the other trends that, that we've seen across, you know, every asset class of real estate is this, this demand from consumers, in this case, tenants, um, for greater flexibility, right? That the, the, the paradigm of the five to 10 year structured lease with a landlord is changing. Sorry, I gotta get my dog out of here. <laughs> is it your, yeah, you could. Come on, lady, come on. 
Oh, that's so cute. Hopping away. I love, I love that she literally hops. Yeah, she's, um, it's really annoying uh, being at home all day with a dog. <laughs> I, I know, I, mine's, been a, mine's a puppy, right? So like I got her and it was a dream and then suddenly lockdown happened and you're like, the, like I realized that having a dog in the office is very different to having a dog when it's just you. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a little rough. Um, <laughs> So I'll, I'll start over. Um, so one of the trends that, that I think we've seen across just every asset class of real estate is this demand from tenants for greater flexibility, not only in the, the rate of leases, but also in the term, the structure, the outs, the ability to expand. And I think retail had also kind of lost that flexibility in terms of how, whether it was a, a traditional retail landlord or whether a department store engaged with the brand. And so how has Appear here introduced that back? Meaning just enabled a emerging new brand and their CEO to for the first time open a physical store. And I guess a related question to that is, I imagine a large part of your role is being consultative with that CEO. And like, how do you design this space? How do you lay out this space? How do you merchandise this space in a way that, you know, yields the best results? That's in some cases a structure, but in some cases very unique to the brand that you built and the products that you have. So I think initially it was, it's very, you know, it all went back to that first question of like, you know, why does this suck so much to launch a store and how can we just make it super simple? And seeing that with a level of naivety, I think naturally went towards that flexibility because that's what we wanted. And I think first of all, just simple stuff like, you know, going online and there being a price and it being all inclusive and people being able to see that, you know, transparently how much things cost. Like that just didn't really exist in retail. It was all like on application or we're going to tell you this and this person, someone else. So first of all, it was like that transparency of pricing. The second thing was about, you know, we developed at the time when we did this, no one had ever done it before, which was like online legals for commercial real estate in retail. Um, there was no sort of precedent. So we did that. How do you keep it as simple as possible and get all landlords to use arguably the same contract? So first of all, it's, like you. it's from how you price it, it's to how you contract it, it's to the checkout and that whole, every step of the flow, I was going, how do we reduce friction? And then I think pricing is becoming an even bigger thing, which is, you know, if you think about it, real estate is priced pro rata, it's the same price every day, you need to make a long commitment. What we've done is we've made that, first of all, seasonal, like how it would be with a hotel, and then dynamic. So it's dynamic in the sense that if suddenly, uh, I don't know, Wimbledon's happening, well, then the price is going to increase. Or if suddenly the hottest brand turns up for six weeks or Kanye opens a store, maybe the, the, there's going to be you know, less liquidity there and therefore the price is going to move. So you're adding this sort of flexibility to pricing, which has just never existed in commercial real estate before. And pre-pandemic, we started, to, we, we rolled this out across London and we were seeing that it was driving the landlord's price returns of you know, over 100% on traditional rents while maintaining like 80 to 90% occupancy. So it was actually you know, incredibly um, successful. And I think that all of those elements help move retail into this new world, but, you, but it sort of needs to be reworked from the ground up. How do you do viewings when it's all across the place? There's a whole 
like logistics as well as pricing that we've worked a lot on to try and make retail work for this new this new world. Um, but flexibility has been happening with or without us, right? Like in 1992, the average lease was 20 years. Now it's like less than five years. You strip out break clauses and you know sort of capex deals that everyone's doing, and it's you know a couple of years. So this is already where the industry is at. It's just about building a model that that actually reflects that and makes it successful. And just thinking about pricing, as more retail leases have moved towards a percent rent model, where the tenant simply pays a percent of sales. I think it's so worrying. What's that? I just think it's worrying. I think it's crazy. You think it's crazy in that direction? Why is that? Well, just so many landlords are like, you know, doing turnover rents and it just feels a bit stupid to me um, because it feels like, it just feels like the the beginning of the end. Um, Because I think that, you know, the problem is, is that you, Turnover rent makes sense if if I was shocked. Just to be clear, because turnover, I think, is an English term. Turnover is percent rent, where basically a tenant pays a percent, like five to twenty percent of their sales, and there's no fixed rent. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. And my concern with that is, I think that if physical retail wasn't driving online sales, they you know percentage rents probably make sense, but what we know is how critical they are to online retail, right? But there isn't a direct-to-consumer brand really that hasn't been doing physical stores and seeing it as an important part of growth. And as I said, you know, the future of retail is about distribution being digital. And yet the physical, the future of brand in many ways is physical. We know that there's a value there that isn't equated to just the sales done in that store. And I think that, you know, most new brands I think about, they don't look at their PL as online versus offline, right? It's just sales. And if you can make retail a flexible variable cost, it's just like any other um, activity you're doing to drive that sale. So I think that unless you are Shopify or your Amazon, if they own real estate and they're controlling the transaction, fine. But mall owners and, 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 and big landlords aren't doing that. And, and we know that retailers aren't really gonna share that information. So I think what's much more important is that they look at pricing being dynamic. I think what's much more important is they understand and landlords get better knowledge of the audience. I think that it's about understanding what the metric is, what the, you know, Google, whether it's cost per click or or cost per, you know, whatever that business's metric is for us, it might be cost per new request that a brand makes. Whatever that impression is that matters for you, that's what landlords should be valuing. But sales to me is, is the wrong uh, piece because unless you've got an overview of the entire checkout, um, you don't know what you're driving. Um, so we need to work on attribution as landlords or we need to work on uh, uh, an impression model that's further up the, uh, the, the, the chain, so to speak. But I think if you start doing percentage deals, um, you know, I already know landlords that, you know, brands that, are, that would not want to give up a space, but they, it's not necessarily a space they make tons of money. Um, so I, I think we get into really difficult territory there. Yeah, it seems, it seems like a really blunt instrument for a more complicated dynamic, which is like for any given brand, the, the metric they care about can be so idiosyncratic. As you said, there's this blurring of the line between marketing and brand marketing and physical yeah. retail. And when you relegate that just to a measurement through sales, 
you're clearly not capturing a lot of that value. And so is your point that it, it could underprice space, meaning moving? Yeah, I think it could underprice space, but I also space to a, a, a retailer. I think it underprices space. And I also think that right now when you're going through huge moments of disruption, of reflection and resetting and things like that, you know, as a company and as a CEO, what I'm trying to really focus on always is what are the right metrics we're looking at and have we got that right? And, you know, not only do I think, you know, that's going to be something really key to retail hours right now, but there's one element there that's like, just are you getting enough value? The other problem is if that's the metric you're focused on, if you're focused on, you know, ultimately it's going to be its percentage of sales, how do I drive more sales in this store? Then if you're focused on the right, wrong metric, you're already at the beginning of the end, right? Whereas if you go, well, hang in a minute, like brands need audience, they need, you know, all of these other elements. How do we focus on driving that? How do we focus on driving the right audience? Um, and, and whether that transacts wherever that is, we just know that this is going to be valuable for that customer. Is your approach in how you take the next few steps and how you innovate and what you build and everything else going to be very different to if you're just focused on sales, right? It might be completely, you know, what's worrying there is even the retailer I put in might be completely irrelevant because I'm looking at the wrong metric to in the end what's going to drive real value. So I think that it's just, in my view, the wrong metric. And it's worrying that everyone's very quickly doing that because there's no other hope without questioning why is it that the previous retail isn't working. And right now, in all, is my brand really taking this space just because of sales? Or are they taking it because they imagine those sales happening wherever they are? That commerce is everywhere. Most sales now happen on a phone. You know, what does that all mean? And therefore, what is my job and what value am I creating? Uh, and I don't think it's about sales per square foot anymore. I think it's completely different. And do you think just in, in that context, you know, one of the problems with high street retail is that you have this distribution of the ownership, right? Where one landlord owns one building that's adjacent from another building. And so they're kind of all working together to recreate a, a particular street or a particular district. And one of the differences versus the shopping center is that you have this command and control environment where a single landlord can make decisions in the macro about how to curate that space, how to give away rent, uh, rent here or you know, add this additional brand here that, that creates that curation both of brands but of the demographic of people that's shopping there. How has a peer here managed just driving collaboration between disparate landlords in a given district? And I know you have an example of a few high streets that you've literally recreated almost from the ground up. I'd love to hear how that's gone. Yeah, so I think high street's been really interesting because, you know, typically real estate has been a very um, hands-off, you know, it's asset class. You sort of get it, you get your person, they rent every five years or 10 years, you relook at it and you have a rent review and you sort of maybe talk to them once a year and that's it. And then suddenly you've got this circumstance where you've got vacancy, where the type of people, the new tenants want a lot more hand-holding. They, they probably talk to you a lot more than once a year. And arguably, you're putting multiple people into that same space. So what you start to see is, you know, the landlord doesn't necessarily, especially in high street, doesn't want to become that hands-on partner. So if they give those spaces to appear here, we have seen streets where suddenly we have the most distribution on that street and we're controlling quite a large element of that street. 
and it allows, and, it, and then going back to it, pricing is dynamic. You understand that, well, if these guys go in, the street becomes more valuable or more, you can see in real time if it's attracting more brands and, and what does that mean? So we've seen streets where the price per square foot has gone from, you know, 70, 80 pounds a square foot to four, 500. We've taken over old subway stations that had been vacant for months and then suddenly went on a peer hearing, we increased rents by 500%, but separately to that, we had years worth of waiting lists and, you know, we turned the old what, men's... What subway station was that? In London, we took Old Street Tube Station, um, which I think Vogue wrote a piece once that said it was the station you sort of hurried through holding your bags and now it's somewhere that you actually, it's now the destination. And we turned like the men's public loo um, where all sorts of stuff went down into one of the most successful menswear stores and that got voted coolest menswear store in the world. And you know, we, we, we turned it into something which was really breathing life. And I think there were 10 units and in three years it had something like 500 unique ideas launched down there. So you're creating this energy and, and in many ways like a diversity, um, which I think you know, only creates value. So we've seen that. I think the malls are in a tricky situation, which is a lot of the retailers they put in, you know, when you think about the anchor tenants, when you think you know, a lot of that retail is, is just not very relevant or very good. Um, and that means that you've sort of got, and this goes back to the metric, right? If you're focused on audience, are you going to put someone else in there who's going to really drive people there that, that are right? Um, and also, I think it's probably you know, malls and different things need to become less about being for everyone and much more focused on who that right audience is. Um, and I think, you know, one real estate person I just think is phenomenal and I think done this very well is, you know, is Rick Caruso in, in LA. Um, you know, you look at something like Palisades and they've got, you know, they've got a waiting list and you look at the growth and it might not be everyone's cup of tea, but it knows what it is and it's phenomenally successful. Um, but, you know, he's, I always think he's a bit like the Walt Disney of real estate, right? Like, when I sat and I met with him and he was showing me what he was doing with Palisades, you know, what, he spoke about the person that lives there the entire time. And that went down to how he selected everything from the guttering to the architecture to, you know, the brands he put in there. And it was like, you know, being a movie exec. What does the audience want? What are the, what's, you know, what's going to entertain people? And then guess what? The um, ticket sales and the box office and everything else follows. Um, so I think he's interesting. And I'm curious also, you know, you, you look at emerging new brands all day, right? And you, you see just the characteristics of the CEOs, uh, the brand growth trajectories, their visions. Do you think that we'll ever have another gap again? Or, or do you think that era of brand is over? The kind of 1500 store, just massive super national retailer. Do you think that's over? Or do you think that that reemerges again. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Gat. I was talking to Mickey Drexler a couple of days ago and, you know, we were both having this exact conversation. Our view was that, you know, there won't be another gap, but there will be, you know, hundreds of brands doing 50 million or 100 million or whatever it else. And they will replace Gap and they won't have as many stores, but they'll be, you know, they'll be much more creative and they will know what they stand for. And I think that, you know, more people are going to participate. There's going to be more voices. Um, I think there's 
a lot well, with commerce and with e-commerce, there's the idea that you can, and with Instagram, you can know a lot more brands and you, you care more than ever about who's behind them and where it's from. And, uh, and I think that that's, that will be much more of the future. I think, look, you're already seeing with people like Kanye West and different individuals that you can still create really valuable brands um, in this moment. But I don't think that that's, you know, over the last few years, that's been the norm, right? The Forever 21s, the J Crews, et cetera. I think now you're going to see a lot less of that. And, and look, if any of us were complaining about retail before why it was doing well, if the customer was complaining, they're like, look, wherever I go, it's the same thing. Um, and I think that's going to change. Um, and that will you know, only be good. It's going to be harder, right? You, as a broker or as a landlord, what those individuals can't do now is say, hey, this looks good there. Let me just convince them to come here. It, it needs a lot more nuance than that. But I think for us as customers, it means that we get to go to places and discover and actually you know, have something in our house that means something versus it just being a commodity. Yeah. And I guess similar question, what happens to the U.S. mall industry, right? I mean, that, that is an industry that's based on templatizing retail, right? And mass curating retail. What do you think happens to it? I think that, I think it's really, really tough. Um, you know, in the UK, we've been a little bit ahead in terms of online sales, been a little bit ahead in terms of what's been happening with the mall industry, stuff like that. And, and right I, now... I didn't know that, actually. So the UK is ahead in terms of online penetration. As oh, yeah. By, by like a huge amount, right? Like I think it was like nearly double the, U, the, the US. Um, so I think that in many ways, you've sort of seen here sometimes the effects of that sooner. Um, and look, we're probably going to have, we've had one, we've got one of the biggest mall, one of the top three mall owners going to administration yesterday. Uh, the next biggest one seems pretty close. Um, so I'm not sure. I think that, you know, saying that, what's also interesting is you look at value retail, you look at Vista Village, you look at a lot of like the outlets and a lot of people, you know, look at that and go, is it successful because they're just selling luxury at cheap price? And actually, I think what's been amiss as well in real estate and talking back to, someone in retail who I think has done very well, Rick Caruso and how he talks, is I think people often overlook design. And a lot of malls are just, who wants to spend time there? Who wants to sit in a restaurant that's essentially in a car park? Um, and there's sort of these big, white, ugly elephants. And then you look at, you know, some, somewhere like Palaces, you look at some of these outlet malls and actually they feel much more like they're outdoors, architecturally they're a bit prettier. It feels more like I a town that, square, almost. Yeah, they're, they're basically replicating the town square, right? But with with, with um, consolidation of ownership. And we know that that consolidation can be a good thing. So I think that, um, I think that if the malls start very quickly focusing on design and architecture more than they have previously and less about rep, you know, before the mall business was like, build the same thing, put the same thing inside and it doesn't really matter where it is, just it's the same. And now I think it's about, you know, trying to make each of those a bit more unique. And that goes down from the design to what you put inside. Um, but more than anything, I think that, I think the malls will come to an end if they do percentage deals. Because if you're a mall, your only business is audience. That's your only business. Like at least, you know, if you own the center of town, it's always going to be the center of town. And maybe right now it's retail, and then it will be something else. And the center of town might change, but it's the center of town. If you're building something to say, hey, come here and find the future or be entertained or whatever you might 
whatever you say, well, it's got to be cool, beautiful, and relevant. And um, what we know is that, yeah, percentage deals, in my view, are going to not, you know, they might be very good for some brands in the short term, but they're not going to be, they're going to be bad for everyone, I think, in, in the long term. You know, one of the things that I remember, I learned this a couple of years ago. In, in U.S. malls, you typically enter on like the second or the third floor. And I always wondered why that was, um, because it's almost like they, they've kind of removed the ground from the mall, dug it out, and then the parking lots, the surface parking lots are effectively on the second floor. And the reason that's the case is that they figured out that psychologically people like going down, but they don't like going up. So if you have them enter on the second floor, they're very likely to go down the escalators and stay down there. It's like a mousetrap. They're basically stuck. Yes. And the reason I thought that was interesting was it speaks to an entirely different approach to engagement with your customers and thinking about shoppers as customers, which is it's not so much about trapping them, right, in like a consumer spending mousetrap. It's about attracting them. Right. And I think it's in, in some ways it's, it's probably that psychological shift, which speaks to why the aesthetic, why the form factors, these malls are all the same and why yeah. you think a mall like Caruso's mall in the Palisades is just, it's, it's very well situated in that environment based on the, de the demographics of that particular area, based on the curation of the stores, based on just the flow of people in that center. Yeah. And it, it puts almost a, a design imperative on landlords that they probably never used to have. Um, and I almost think that creates an opportunity for some of the high street locations. Like you, you were giving the example of, um, I guess, Old Street Station that you were able yeah. to completely refashion. Are there particular um, areas of focus for appear here where like this is a template that we like to work with? Is there a... Is there a particular canvas that's very attractive to you to refashion a retail center? Look, we love, um, you know, we're super interested in like travel locations and things like that. I think what's really interesting is neighborhoods. Um, we've seen an acceleration of neighborhoods pre-COVID. That's only accelerated further. Um, so it's less about the center of town and more about the interesting districts where people are living. Um, so if it's New York, you know, rather than Fifth Avenues, I'd be interested in East Village or Brooklyn or Bushwick or places like that. If it's New York, if it's LA, I'm interested in downtown LA or Silver Lake or, you know, Venice. And, uh, you know, if it's, um, I, so I think there's an interest there. I think same with London, it's the Peckhams and the Notting Hills and the, the Hackneys and the edges, the periphery versus just the middle. Um, the sort of the middle of the peripheries, if that makes sense. So I think there's this drive towards neighborhoods. Um, the other thing I care about is these sort of creative cities. So younger populations, you know, very creative. Um, you're seeing, especially in a period like this, they bounce back much quicker. So your Stockholms, your Berlins, um, you know, probably places like in the US, other places like Portland and stuff like that. I think that they're particularly interesting. Um, so where they weren't really retail cities before, and I think that that's where we're seeing that brands will be going forward. Um, and I think a lot of that relates back to, you know, all the trends that we've been saying. Uh, and, and I think you make a great point with the mall and, and the second floor. And, you know, in many ways, it sort of reminds me of if you talk to an engineer or a product designer at somewhere like, you know, 
Amazon, where it's about, you know, how do I get them on the site and how do we create this loop where they just keep buying? And it's all about how do I get you to buy as quickly as possible and as much as possible. Uh, and Amazon's mastered that and it's and the consumption, it's a better experience. But that was only ever a part of retail. And I think that the other part, um, you know, what we're trying to do at Appear here is we're trying to help arm all those smaller guys. And, and what we're showing is they're building great businesses, that they're creative and that they've got such a viewpoint. Um, and if you give more people access, I think you create more interesting locations. But ultimately, the, the, we took a crap tube station. I mean, it really was hideous to walk down. And just by giving people access and seeing 500 ideas launch down there, it became a hotspot. And I think that also shows you that sometimes we can all overthink this. And it's a bit like, you know, it doesn't really matter how good a script is as a movie if the actors are crap. You sort of need, you know, incredible talent. And that talent will find, you know, talent will attract audiences somehow. It's just like a universal fact. It's like if you've got something great, people find it, period. Right. Yeah, it's... Uh... I think about Amazon and, you know, the, the acquisition of Whole Foods and it feels like in some ways Amazon um, has, has just taken market share from products um, and stores that, that, that sell commodity goods, right? So if you're, if you're buying paper towels, it just doesn't matter whether you buy them yeah. on Amazon or you buy them in the grocery store, you buy them from a local store because there's nothing intimate about that shopping experience. There's nothing, there's no, dis, there's no element of discovery. And do you think that the future of the, the kind of uh, retail districts and retail centers that you're focused on are focused more on the brands that are, that have an intimacy with the consumer, that have an element of discovery, that have um, just a, a way of touching the consumer and involving the consumer in a way that um, attracts them to it. Like, do you think that there, there emerges this dichotomy between staple goods sold on Amazon, e-commerce takes the lion's share of it, and then more intimate products that uh, really speak to the consumer's identity that actually accelerate the amount that's sold offline. Do you think that's the dichotomy we're seeing? Yeah, 100%, but I also think that the last point is it's not necessarily about where it's sold. I think it doesn't matter if you then still transact with Shopify, you transact wherever you transact. I think that Amazon is killing that, that retail that was just about consumption and about, you know, like you said, pure, just product that's like, and need. like my friend had a baby and buying nappies, like the amount of times you have to buy nappies, like it's mad. So having Amazon Prime and pressing a button, it just appears at your house. Like that's great. That's saved him a ton of friction and like a, sh a crappy experience. Um, but yeah, the weekends, even if it's raining, you know, pre-COVID, he's still getting his baby and his wife and they're all like getting the pram out and going through all of this palaver to go and visit a little street and have coffee and look at people and people watch and discover stuff. And all of that stuff is just what makes us human, right? It's, it's we all want to connect. And I think that to your point, you know, I think that the retail, retail's a funny word, isn't it? It's like, you know, the space of our streets is in many ways a canvas where people need to be able to create stuff. And whether that's art or whether it's product or whether it's restaurants, whatever it is, I think that, you know, we want to see and we, 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 there is this sort of care about people making stuff, using their hands and doing things. And, you know, I just thinking about a few examples 
Um, we had a shop launch not very long ago, and this woman, she um, makes wooden spoons and chopping boards and stuff, right? And like, you're like, who would really care about that? Yet she's got hundreds of thousands of followers online. And everyone's obsessed with her woodworking. And she now does woodworking classes online. And then she creates these beautiful stores. And people want that chopping board or that thing to mean something and to have a story about it and to um, obsess over the craft. And I think that that, uh, whatever that is, is interesting. That's happening at the moment. The same with like bookshops, right? Everyone can buy books on Amazon. Yet we're seeing that bookshops are being incredibly successful. And a few that, weeks ago, I had... Actually, I'm surprised to hear that. So bookshops yeah. are seeing a resurgence. I've seen a huge resurgence because yeah. it's like, look, like the idea, even if you look at book sales, like we can all have a Kindle or read online, right? Yet books are doing better than ever. So why is that? I think we still want stuff that's tactile. And we had a bookstore launch a few weeks ago and it was a, an ex-publisher. And she realized that there were no books with ethnically diverse um, lead characters in, no children's books. And she had a kid and she was like, you know, her child asked, why you know, are there no, why none of the, the, the sort of fairy tales you're reading me about people like me? And she created a bookshop in London with us in Brixton um, called, uh, I think it's called Rainbow Books. And she has created just books which are all where she's gone out and seeped all of these books that have characters that are ethnically diverse and her books shops doing amazingly well and i think there's something there as well which is like you can create these incredible niches um, and actually they're not niches something like her needs to be much more mainstream but she's made, been able to create it because she's got that online problem and then because there's so much choice in another area because you can go online you can buy whatever book you want or you know you can buy so much stuff, you can buy more stuff than we've ever been able to buy, that what these stores and these merchants are doing is in many ways what they did at the beginning, which is being a merchant is sort of like knowing your product and you That's trust where the merchandising them. comes from. Yeah, right? you know, like that exactly. Is merchandising. Exactly, and you trust the merchant and you go, oh, like, you know, bike shops right now in London during lockdown have queues around the block and everyone's in there for ages trying to understand what bike's the best bike to have. Like they can go online and there's bikes everywhere, right? You can buy thousands of bikes, but we don't know what ones we want. Um, friends of mine that go to surf shops and they sit in a surf shop in Cornwall or wherever it is and they're watching the surfing on the television. Why? Because they're in a room of other people that care about surfing. You don't get that online. So stores become about belonging. They become about merchandising. They become about selection. Um, they become about storytelling and, um, and, and the most interesting thing is often if you're in real estate, people look at that and they go, oh, there's no value. In it. Well, pre lockdown, right? Pre COVID, like, let's be honest, real estate wasn't in a great place in retail, you know, rents were already declining and we were generating rents that were a hundred percent above market rent at the top of the market while in the rest of the market was declining because we were allowing more people to participate. Um, and when you backed up those ideas, you were giving the individual more access at a more affordable rate, but the landlord was actually making more money because they were getting high occupancies and driving high rent levels through dynamic pricing. Um, so it, it can work, um, but it needs to be fully embraced. And I think the one thing COVID will do is accelerate that behavior change. Yeah, right. There isn't really, you can't go back to the old way now because it just, it doesn't exist. 
Well, Ross, this has been so interesting hearing your perspective on brands and retail and, and everything. And thanks so much for sharing your thoughts. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thanks, Ross. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.